Hi. Good morning. This is Eli. Um, it's uh, it's early. It's early in the morning. We're in the car on the 580. We're about to get on the. We're on the 80, really. Truth be told, about to get on the 580. 13B here. Take the Point Richmond San Rafael Bridge. Head over to the other side of the bay, and um, I've been thinking a lot about death um, and how it relates to craft and making and memory, loss of memory and legacy when people die and making and art and craft converge around death and death rituals and how the things that people make and the knowledge they have can become so special in death uh, things that can seem so commonplace then becomes so important when we lose someone. Then also the craft of dying, of preparing oneself to die, facing one's death, um, really looking at that and the craft of mourning and dealing with loss and death and the rituals around the moment of death the following the following days in the, the intense mourning period and then the years that follow and the ways that we revisit that and the memories and the Altars that we build, the physical moments that we have around um, memorializing, remembering, being present for our dead friends and family. So it's kind of serious, huh? It's kind of a big one. I'm really nervous about this. Um, it's something I think about a lot and I think it's really important to my art and my craft and I think it's part of why I'm trying to make these recordings is to get at the honesty. So I'm actually not even sure I can make this, make through, make it through this or make it through this without just bawling. Um, I already feel pretty emotional, but I'm a pretty emotional dude. So, um, I'm here, I'm here for some emotion and, um, I think addressing these things head on is, is helpful for all of us. Um, as a maker, I think it's so important, uh, to understand some of the why of things, because if we're going to put all of our energy into an object, understanding why and, the, and because the legacy of that object often these objects that we make will live on f way past us and so understanding um, you know the hows and whys of these objects uh, to me is so important it's so important because it, 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 it speaks to my legacy after my death it um, often in my art connects the death of my friends and my family um, into myself and into the physical world it, um, creates a kind of physical manifestation of these feelings of loss and uh, the feelings of 
fear, regret, and sadness, our own facing our own death, facing my own death, uh, and thinking about that and what that means. Um, I've had a couple really striking moments of death in my life um, where I've lost people near me uh, and it's been a big part of my um, art journey and I think has also steered where I've found craft um, in college there were two students and a professor that died all within a very short period of time. And these two students were friends of mine, Jaffe and Dave. And they were both my age. And um, Jaffe died in skateboarding accident hit by a car for spring break and it was just a you know really sweet guy and a fun silly part of a you know a hippie community in the at the school and you know his his knowledge of tree climbing and man he was really good at throwing frisbee and I'm sure a bunch of other things he was really good at that I didn't know because at that age we didn't we didn't know each other well enough and then Dave David was in a caught an avalanche in a snowboarding accident it was actually on my birthday and didn't and we had a birthday party and I didn't know about it and it was before the days of cell phones so nobody knew where anybody was but there was a couple people that were up on the mountain looking for him and it was a really you know a, a strange moment because we didn't I didn't find out about it until the next day and then those two losses were just huge for me because they really um, I just felt so like it could have been me in either of those um, and, it, and it felt so close to home um, <coughs> you know two very lively young people David was a really amazing climber <coughs> and guitar player and I think just, just kind of mentioning these these things that they knew is what I have been kind of thinking about is like the the loss of that, that knowledge base um, and, and what that means. Not that that was necessarily who they were or that that was their character, but that those were, were, were things that I think about of like uh, the loss of of that knowledge base that, that I think about myself carrying on <clears throat> that even though like also same for me that like this all this knowledge that I have that I'm trying to pass on is not my character um, but it's representational of something of, of a time period and a space and a connection to the community and the people in the community um, and then Paul, Paul Dewey, a professor uh, of art history, and he had a brain aneurysm. Um, I believe he was in his 60s, maybe early 60s, you know, a, a young 60 and a really interesting art historian, just really weird. Um, and a really wonderful person, and I really connected strongly with him um, as he was 
really excited about art and 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 excited about art history and the the basics of art history in a way that I hadn't understood that I had avoided a lot of kind of art history and the knowledge of art history and and he made some of that make sense and understanding even some of the the European canons that are so boring and furniture, Georgian furniture, man, he fucking loved Georgian furniture. And understanding that, like, just, you know, he was like a, a catalog of information of just really, um, you know, of painting and furniture and knew these things so well and was passionate and excited about it in a way that I think, um, I mean, I, I, I often... <laughs> still think about him and think about how fun it would be to ask him questions about things now and as I've connected dots and gone back and, and revisited lectures in my mind and realized what he was hinting at about paintings and trying to give us a kind of subversive look at, at very standard um, European American art history and give us a kind of a little bit of a you know a feminist and weirdo bent and like taking the outsider perspective and twisting it and but still you know hitting all the marks that he needed to hit as an arts you know art historian in a liberal arts college and giving all the kids their basic art history um what a wealth of knowledge and that was just uh you know that loss also was just so striking and strange and it was like there's that there there's that one person that i was kind of clinging to in that art history place and that like that person that kept me felt like i was able to be grounded in some way through this and he was the one guy that I could go to that kind of understood like my confusion with craft and art and my place in that school that I didn't quite feel like I fit there but I didn't know what else to do and um, and then it just all disappears there's not a you know Somebody else doesn't pick up that mantle, doesn't pick up that legacy. You don't just all of a sudden have that connection to someone else. It's like it's all, it just disappears. And the fractures in the community of the young kids, the, you know, freshmen, sophomore, juniors of that school and the loss of those friends of Jaffe and David like just tore that apart what goes from like a kind of like your first exciting years of college and you're just you know the world seems wide open and then you know two really sweet boys who were just playing you know just die and they're and all those little connections and all that stuff becomes a loss and it becomes so much serious, so much more serious. And it's like you're meeting the parents and you're going to a funeral and it's like, it's, you know, it's real life stuff and it's, you know, big grown up pain. And um, it all just felt futile and silly to me. And, so I think this started my own journey away from that school and part of why I dropped out of that school at the end of my junior year um, was just a disconnect with like what I was doing. I, you know, I was doing great in all the classes. I didn't need to leave. I could have been, I could be a, I could be a college graduate today. Uh, it wasn't, I wasn't far from it, but I didn't. It, none of it made sense with that kind of like loss and pain it was like there was it felt like there was something more to think about and it wasn't in the walls of an institution uh, I don't know is that is that correct is that right I, I you know it is what it is it's probably totally bonkers and wrong and I should be I should be 
be a college graduate and I should have a normal job, but here we are. Um, instead, I'm recording a conversation about dying to myself in my car while I drive to work as a maker. So, um, just the next big deaths. There was a couple in Bellingham of overdoses. Friends, a roommate. And then there was Donald, a 16-year-old boy who was the younger brother of Stephen, who I was very close with. I was close with Donald, but if I was 20... If it was 2006, I must have been 26, 27. I was maybe 25 and he shot himself Um, and that was you know really painful and hard it's like a young boy in obviously in pain and you know lashing out a moment of like extreme pain trouble and felt like that felt really like you know, I could see myself also in that place of like young and in pain um, and the you know the disdain towards firearms and all that kind of culture that was like you know loosely surrounding like in the woods of the northwest is like these, these, these guns and aggression and bad drugs um, and then a year or so later was his brother then Stephen who I was much closer with also took his own life in the same way um, shot himself and That um, that was 2007, I believe. And, you know, I was really considered him one of my best friends. And it just, you know, was like he was, a, you know, in some ways like a younger brother to me. I grew up with him um, right next door to him in a tiny little town. Northwest, and um, Steve he was studying to be apprenticing on tugboats to become a tugboat captain. And I had, when I was younger, I had worked with his dad when I was 11, 12, 13. I had spent a lot of time with his dad on boats, on fishing boats, but working as a log salvage in the, uh, in the Puget Sound. Um, I was homeschooling, so which meant I didn't have to go to school, which meant I could go out in the middle of the night to go salvage logs with the old timers. So, and I was willing to jump in the water at three in the morning to set chokers onto logs on the beach, which Steve was definitely not into. But, you know, he was only like, what, it's seven or eight years old. And, uh, 
but quite quite an old soul quite an old soul he knew better than to do that but then wanted to you know was was serious about being a tugboat captain Twenty-three or twenty-four was really knowledgeable about boats. Really good at driving boats and motors, two-stroke engines, and maneuvering in tight little areas in a boat. Um, it was really fun to watch him work those gill netters and little skiffs and little smoker craft and watching him handle himself on a boat and us all you know spending our teenage years rowboats canoes and skiffs in the Puget Sound um, learning about tides critters fish how to maneuver the boats how to get away with things in boats in the middle of the night And, you know, that, like, the, the depth of depression that will bring about suicides, um, the, the pain that is within the person that we can all identify after it happens, the connection, you know, to his younger brother doing the same thing the year before, two years before, and... how hard that can be you know how we all wish we could do something different I couldn't even go into the funeral um, I had gone to his brothers and I couldn't I couldn't even bring myself and it was all really close family and friends but I sat in the parking lot of the funeral drank in the car and then drove I really didn't I, I was also incredibly depressed and destroyed by that and a lot of drinking and driving and a lot of wishing my own death and trying to find my own death uh, through really really rest, reckless and risk taking behaviors um that were incredibly dangerous and uh, very much I think you know it was like in some ways I was channeling his spirit and the worst of the worst of that spirit and the worst of that uh, but the most the most you know kind of full of life but fuck the world kind of feeling that one can get uh in that youthful time only like I think (laughs) in that early 20s when like we really don't care and we can really say fuck the world and we really think we'll live forever and we also want to die Uh, and I think that I really dove deep into that into those behaviors and somehow didn't die and came out of that only slightly scathed and um, a lot of confusion about myself and depressed but maybe also stronger as I got through it uh, and you know, there was the place where I really felt the longing for Steve-O. I really felt the longing for the conversation that I could only have with him. There wasn't, there wasn't anybody else. There wasn't, like, a community that I could dive into and, like, oh, I can, like, now I can have this conversation with this person. It's just, like, the special conversations I had with him were only 
with him and that was just that was it there was nothing there like we had both experienced so much together and so many wonderful like crazy adventures as teenagers and so much so much drunk driving as teenagers in you know Port Townsend he would come visit me and you know fuck he must have been 16 you know and we would get in the car with a couple of 40s and just drive slowly around town listening to music drinking just the most terrible reckless behavior but it just seemed the funnest and it seemed weirdly the safest like we're driving slow on back roads we're not driving fast we're not doing anything crazy we're not going out we're 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 staying in in the car <laughs> and you know these kind of like hilarious moments of youth that like are so fun to look back on with others that you've experienced this with when you're all okay and surviving and it felt like we were okay and surviving and you know I had just seen him recently and he seemed like he was really striving and, and it was strong and was looking really good and had lots of cool tattoos and was like getting into being a cool tugboat driver and you know that that all all those memories all the the memories that we had crafted together all just disappear you know and that all those connections and like that enormous loss for myself and then the feeling of like also like selfishness around that of like why am I feeling so sad he's the one that's gone you know I'm still here and wanting to like somehow carry on a legacy for him but not feeling adequate enough to carry on that legacy just missing him so fucking much you know just like all you want is to see your friend and you don't want to have to feel like you have to carry something on or like be strong or like be something else it's just like I just want to see my friend and I think that's where I just like felt like dying you know and I just felt like well fuck this I'm fucking going out like Steve-O my pants are on my ankles saying fuck the world fuck the fucking world man and I still couldn't fucking die <laughs> so crazy so hilarious what, a, what an absolute disaster my life was and like also really like you know this is like when I'm like getting really serious about glass blowing and like also like very focused on learning glass and I I had just moved to Tacoma and had spent, you know, I was about five years into being a glassblower and I was doing it full time and it was, you know, I was really, really learning a lot and finally getting to the place where I could really actually support myself and could actually of assistance and actually help and work in a shop, you know, to the place where I actually knew some things. Um, so, just such a strange, you know, I, there was this feeling also that, like, I would give myself this, like, I, you know, while when at work, I wouldn't, you know, there's no, like, no morning and no birthdays until after five. And that I was also very serious about work, you know? And then on the weekends and the time off, just totally, like, fuck this. And. I don't know, you know, I don't think I totally connected all that, but I think some of it was, like, finding my own place in, like, creating my own legacy and creating my own space for myself and, 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 and becoming more internal and losing, like, to lose a connection like that of a really good friend is to, like, 
uh, it, there, it can't be rebuilt. I can't go back and find and relive my teenage years with somebody that's going to survive. You know, that's it. And dang, so that then also like ties it into Joey, who was at that point. Let's see if we can time period here was like because he got busted I think in like 2003 and his house burnt down 2004 right around the time that Donald died and then and so we were kind of out of touch and he was Joey was making MDMA in his house in his lab in his house and that's what he got busted for and then um which is a really crazy story, but we won't tell that right yet. Um, and then the house burnt down, and so then we were like, and he was going through drug court, and I was staying, and we decided to like not be in touch. And Joey was also one of these guys I grew up with. You know, we met in first grade and became just best friends through all, you know, through grade school high school and also really crazy energy and really crazy stories uh, and we were basically the same age so we were also a little closer where steve was a little bit younger and so it was always a little bit of a younger brother older brother uh, even though it's such a naughty older brother um and so then, you know, Joey and I, we, I mean, we were at the funeral together and then at the beach after Steve's beach party, taking mushrooms, drinking beer, throwing rocks. And really, ugh, that was sad. Um, and so then... Joey and I lived together then in Tacoma not long after that and I think this is some of the reason why I was willing to Joey when Joey wanted to have a lab in my basement in Tacoma that it also it didn't I wasn't scared of that I wasn't scared of having like such a heavy weight of both either the fear of um, well the fear of just like having something uh, illegal something so illegal and I had made a promise to Joey that if we did get busted that I would take the hit for it because he'd already been busted and he would be facing a real serious charge and that me without charges yet could probably get away with only a five-year sentence or something if we actually got busted in the house. Uh, and that just, like, didn't... It didn't seem like... It, did, it wasn't scary to me. It wasn't scary to, to face that. It seemed like the kind of promise I wanted to make to my friend, you know? And it seemed like... His, you know, he was, when we made the decision, he was in East Bremerton in a little storefront with his lab. And at first, I just wanted to get him out of East Bremerton and into Tacoma and into a normal life. And I wanted him to start working for artists because I thought he could have a great life as an artist assistant. Uh, because he was so smart and so able to make so many different things, such a craft person. Um, but then, as we started looking at houses in Tacoma in 2007 and like figuring out what we were going to do, I realized he was looking at the basements and looking at these lab, you know, these lab spaces. And, um, you know, with Joey, it was like, it was a, you take the whole thing or he's not playing. And I knew it wasn't like, there wasn't a, you know, he was going to do this and this is what he wanted to do. And this was his craft was to make some of the best, purest MDMA 
in new and innovative and very uh, underground processes and uh, his craft and the way that he developed the making of methylendioxymethamphetamine in from sassafras but then from almond oil and the way that he developed these techniques was cutting edge and he was a pioneer in his field at a very young age uh, doing things that are now have become you know in some ways standard in some of the underground labs uh, and he was at this leading edge and understood this and was in communication with old scientists and had built an understanding of a legacy and a following himself um, all secretly clandestine and anonymous you know because it was incredibly illegal and there was a lot of a lot of secrets he had that he'd even keep from me and secrets you know that I'd kept from him and things that ways that we did that that were just I mean it was an incredibly complex brotherhood and I think that I really clung to that in a way of like dealing with Steve's death was like all right I can like you know I can continue to build a friendship and a brotherhood here and lean into something like this uh, in, you know, losing another friend. I can uh, hold on to this one and, you know, create new legacies and stories from this, which is definitely what we did in having a incredibly illegal drug lab in our basement for a couple years in Tacoma and smuggling those drugs internationally flying on airplanes with drugs packed on my person dressed up as a hick wearing my best camo and howling wolf shirt my American flag hat were quite a team quite a team building like a legacy of crazy northwest myth makers um, and so Joey then and he died in 2014 and it was after that so we had the drug lab together and we kind of made a promise to like it had a lifespan that we also knew that what we could do was to like go hard on this moment and then shut it down and to release ourselves from the stress because it also really stressed Joey out he was a little more high strung and I think that I probably was more relaxed which I think also really made Joey more stressed um, and and so as we put a time period on it and then we got it done and ended in 2009 um, Joey then took his cash and went to India for six months and spent six months traveling to India and part of this was to get his teeth fixed because his teeth were also fucked up and so he got all this great dental work done over that six months but also spent the time traveling up and down India um, and of course like trying to kick opiates but also like secretly doing drugs and 
brought his partner with him subjected her to even more torturous like Joey on drugs pretending he's not on drugs going on a hiking trip Joey was he was the best at that he loved that he was always trying to like go on some trip to get off drugs and then taking drugs with him and pretending that he wasn't on them falling asleep um he made drugs look really fun and really bad (laughs) so good at that and so this you know this kind of crazy like drug lab situation um, I think there was part of it there was always part of it that he wanted to create cheap accessible high quality drugs the loss of LSD in the marketplace from there was a big bust in like the late 90s where an underground lab that made 90% of the LSD in, in the states was potentially the world was busted and um, and so all that, the acid that we were getting in our teenage years, Joey and I were taking together in the 90s, then it wasn't available. There was no more the market, just like the acid market wasn't around anymore. And it became more of a cocaine and heroin market, which was also really depressing. And I think Joey really wanted to make acid but it was too hard to get the precursors Um, but MDMA was the next best bet that it was possible to make it from the precursors of sassafras and then he developed this technique to make it from almond oil and and that idea of making this drug that was like you know making a really pure uncut form of this drug and making it available to people for a a reasonable price was like part of his you know social (laughs) justice initiative Uh, and and then also making 2CB was the next uh, was also on the list um, which is really wonderful psychedelic but also really powerful and really you know it's like really aggressive psychedelic um, which they all are they're all really aggressive they're all really great drugs and you can make them as pure as possible but it turns out they're all still fucking drugs and, and as Joey showed like even the good drugs you can turn bad by abusing them um, and he'd love to prove that so before we came to the deadline and like finishing up our final push of in the drug lab in Tacoma um, we were selling to people in Seattle and it was like through a friend was selling to another group of people another group of young people and there was a really violent murder in that group of people it was like not you know it wasn't us it wasn't right connected to us but it was very it was like it was close enough it was one you know one sale removed and and this is part of, I think, our mistake wasn't... We didn't have enough of a, like, you know, a marketplace or a channel to, like, sell it through. We weren't far enough removed from the street. Um, and, which I think is the nature of, like, being young and being fucking crazy. And, you know, one of the young people was shot all of the people in a car in a some sort of altercation and um, 
you know, middle of the day, gets mad at people, and they try to take off in the car, and he comes out with the, with the semi-automatic rifle and shoots at the car, and you know, standard drug activity, I don't know, the kind of thing you hear about and seems like it happens, but this was to hear about this like through friends of friends was like this is enough of this enough, enough because I didn't want I didn't have guns at that point I'd had guns when I was you know, like in Montana I would, it had some guns and then I would sell my guns, when I left Montana I'd sold my guns. I took a 22 rifle to New Orleans with me on my motorcycle, which was also really crazy. But um, at this point in Tacoma, we didn't, I didn't want to have guns. I didn't feel like it was a good idea to have guns in a drug lab and a crazy people house. Um, And we'd known people that had had guns involved in a drug situation and usually what happens is when the cops come then that gun immediately becomes illegal you can't legally have a gun like you're illegal and guns are illegal once you're illegal and the charges will just generally just get doubled if you have guns even if you they were illegal at the point you had them once you have the guns you're not legally allowed to have guns and so you can go from a five or ten year to a twenty to forty year sentence, um, and so not having guns was an important part of our drug lab craft, and um, I can't believe I'm fucking telling you all this shit. This is crazy. But this is the truth, and here we are for the honesty, the craft, the craft of death. And so not having guns was important. And then understanding that there was deaths that were happening that were gun-related around us. And it wasn't like we had anything. It wasn't a sale that we we'd even made. It wasn't like related to us in that way. But it was just like we knew of these people you know, and we knew what was going on, um, and I didn't want to get, I didn't want to go to the next stage of like, okay, now let's get guns and let's arm ourselves and protect ourselves so that we can keep our money and our drugs in our house. That didn't seem like what I wanted to do. It seemed like what I wanted to do was get that money and spend it on some weird-ass art projects and get on to making art and get the drug lab done and have this, like, fun story to tell. So, um... That's really where we went with that. That's how it all, you know, we... Shut it all down. And... We had... At one point in 2009, we had an art show in Tacoma the truth we forgot to lie about which was a amalgamation of all of this craft and these myths and these stories and turned them into physical objects and when we got the show we also like broke the drug lab down for the show Uh, part of it was that some of the objects from the lab went to the show Um, we had also had a weight machine in our basement um, that was part of our lab and GHB use. Uh, and so we broke the la- the weight machine down and brought it to the gallery. It got so paranoid that we put all of the, the lab stuff away and turned it back into a normal basement thinking that like somehow, you know, the cops are going to see this art show and they're going to know that we got a drug lab in our basement. Uh, and then we put it back in and that was kind of like the final run was like Joey brought his stuff back out and he would have, he had a secret storage that he would take things and I didn't know where it was so that I didn't purposely, I wouldn't know so it was really like disappeared Um, and and then brought it back into the house of Tacoma in 2009 and 
had one more push that was also then that money was being used for me like I was able to you know buy a fucking camera my Canon Rebel <laughs> I was able to afford a $700 camera a couple of lenses and and pay for you know some airplane tickets to New York and like go to New York and go to LA and travel some work into Europe and like be present for my art and not have to have a full-time job but able to like be a glass below freelance artist but also have you know a fistful of cash that made it possible to uh, kind of be present for some of these initial art shows the 2008 in April of 2008 um, my brother and I Oscar Hanson Kazan had an art show in um, the Seattle Art Museum and we went to Alaska with Joey and my friend Sam um, to create the works for this show and this is kind of before Joey and I got serious about the lab but this was kind of this impetus of like all right, I think that this is happening and this could be a serious moment. And that was part of like Joey wanting to come to Tacoma was like getting serious about art. And before I quite understood that he really wanted to have a lab, I thought that he, you know, but then he like came to Alaska with us and of course did the thing where he was like, I'm not on drugs, but actually he was on opiates and then was like trying to kick opiates while he was in Alaska, but also had brought like weird drugs with him. So, um, and then it was like the spark was there that art could happen and that we could build a legacy. And then we could grow things. And, you know, then we had that show together in Tacoma in 2009, which was, you know, wonderful because Joe is the, you know, it's the only time that he had an art show. And I don't know if he ever even made music. I mean, he made so many recordings and so much music, but I don't think he ever like released any music and like never actually like made an album as work or anything or like put it out there sure there's recordings that he shared with friends but I mean he was such an incredible musician it was so amazing to listen to him perform and so hard to get him to share anything he did you know he would he would happily sing you a song but wasn't going to record something or make it into something he didn't like you know he was he was so self-critical and so having an art show with him was such a huge thing that he was willing to like sign off on this but even then during at the opening of the show he was supposed to come to the opening and he got all dressed up and him and his partner were going to come and he's like i'll meet you down there and then he just fucking took off. I didn't see him for like a week. He just fucking bailed. So fuck this. He got so nervous and felt so weird about it. And the show was incredible. The titles and the pieces are all just like such passionate work and like such a great, you know, collaboration. But I mean, so much of it was him like coming up with these ideas and like playing with these legacies and myths that we had understood and this this title the truth we forgot to lie about was addressing these legacy of myths and the stories that we knew as northwest boys and the myths and legends that we had heard and how you know how the 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 truth gets contorted and the stories of like you know of Kurt Cobain and the stories of Ted Bundy are like passed down to us like 
on a playground from like you know our friends parents like they're more than just you know newspaper clippings they were real stories of our childhood you know Francis Farmer and like all of these kind of amazing um, legends had roots and connections to us and our stories but we also knew that these were like larger than life legends and that was like part of the joy was that they were these unreal stories and these unreal myths and that that was that craft you know the craft of storytelling was so important and such a big part of our lives and the joy of telling each other these crazy tales and spinning these whoppers that were like related to truth but also transmuted a an emotion and a space and a stage and set the stage for like who these people were and created the legends and that was was what that show was was like creating more legends of ourselves and like telling these stories about ourselves and others and some of it being truthful and some of it being total lies but that being part of that legend is like is the spinning of the tale is the person that it's about you know contorting it a little bit on their way into the grave is to like spin these tales and send it off into the universe that then carry on these legacies thinking a lot about steve-o during that time and like what his epic legacy was and the stories that we then told around the campfire about him and like how it was important to make steve-o out to be larger than life You know, we weren't going to tell the stories that, you know, made him out to be a smaller person. We were going to spin the tale to make him even more legendary and even more hilarious and even bigger than life. And like he swam even further and pooped his pants even more. And, you know, it was like he drank even more, partied even harder like these legends are important because like what do we have we have a dead friend and like we don't have him and we wish we had him but we can at least like make him out to be 10 feet tall and a you know an amazing beautiful party animal man um even though we all know you know he was you know was also a faulted person but you're not going to talk about somebody's faults and like you know in that same way you're going to like spin them into a legend which you know then when Joey died in 2014 after you know we had completed this drug lab mission and then I'd got a job working for an artist and introduced him to the artist and the artist hired him and he moved out to upstate New York and we were all living near each other and he was smoking the equivalent of four packs of cigarette a day and his crazy vape machine and got walking pneumonia and dies just fucking died and had like gotten back on benzos and was like definitely on drugs but like uh, we all thought it was an overdose but it turns out it was just walking pneumonia and when he died then and I was away from the Northwest very far from my home a group of 10 or 12 boys, men all came out to my house in upstate New York and we all sat around a campfire for a week and told stories about Joey. Just legends after legend. Crying, 
sitting and drinking. Not even realize we are sitting Shiva for our Jewish friend for a whole week, for all seven days. The campfire burned, but we never had to relight it. Just somebody would get up in the morning and pull the coals out and put a stick on there. All of us Northwest boys in a foreign land, but knowing one thing we all know still is fire and a campfire and how to sit around a fucking campfire and tell a fucking story. Tell a fucking whopper. And we all missed him because he was such the glue of our group. And like all of us, like everyone was so in love with him. And he was such a magic character. Never met anybody like him. And no one's as crazy as him. And no one's as smart as him. And no one as well-traveled as him. And no one has read as many books. Plays music the way he does. And read Art Forum and Art in America and People Magazine. And could talk about celebrity culture or art legacy or fucking Jasper Johns or fucking Basquiat or Beyonce and knew it all he fucking knew it all and he was crazier than anybody and he didn't he didn't seek any sort of celebrity for it he was such a perfect person and that legend just was like bigger and larger and so amazing and beautiful to sit Shiva and to not even know like we none of us even really knew what that was and didn't understand it until you know our informal way we'd sat there for a whole week with a fire holding place for Joey and all of us bawling and his partner at a loss just curled up on the couch and was trying to support her and my partner pregnant also lost all of us drinking too much and being young and dumb crating and banging into the craft of mourning and the craft of death and I think that I really like had you know in some ways like with Steve-O and like it was so young when he died that like I didn't know how to do any of it and I think you know I did know with Joey that I wanted to put all of my life on hold and I wanted to be near the people that loved him and share that time as much as I could with them and not do anything but think about him for that week and you know it's still it doesn't do anything it doesn't I mean it does something but it doesn't it doesn't bring him back it doesn't change the pain it doesn't undo any of that Um, and it you know what it does do is it creates more legend and myth it creates more of those beautiful enormous stories you know the giants that sat around that campfire you know those men are each of them such amazing legendary people of the northwest and huge characters that each have their own enormous legends and would and will have these myths and legends like told about them for generations and that that you know crafting of those stories and the holding of that space is is part of that death craft of that death legacy of the you know the one thing I have that can't be taken from me is these stories and all of this time spent being with people that also 
spend their time being. Holy shit, Joey. Fucking miss you, you motherfucker. Um, well, I'm here at the workplace again. So we still have a couple more people to talk about. Um, Greg and my dad. And I'm sure I'll think of more. So I guess we have to talk more about death. Um, I'm glad that we could have this time together. I hope this was crafty enough. I hope this wasn't too emotional and too not makery, but the legends, that's the important stuff. That's the real stuff, kids. Alright, well, I love you a lot. Thanks for listening. Um, um, I'll talk to you soon, alright? Just send a message. Bye for now.